Good morning. Whoa. This is lesson six in our study of the book of Thessalonians. I have a couple of confessions to make. One is that I have been persuaded, and probably rightly so, that my text was too long, and so I'm only going to cover verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. I'll talk briefly about the others, and then I'll pick up the rest in a minute. I think you're seeing my slides. Yes. My topic, as you can tell, is good grief, and uh, that ought to bring old Charlie to mind. I should tell you, by the way, that uh, for the next three weeks, David Dean is with us, and he's going to be uh, preaching, and so we have the opportunity to to benefit from his teaching, and uh, I'll pick up then in Second Th- or First Thessalonians chapter five uh, at the end of that. Grief can be a good thing, and it can be beneficial not only for ourselves but for others. I was thinking, for example, of that short passage, the one that all the kids love to learn because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. But notice the impact of our Lord's weeping upon those who watched. They said, behold, how he loved him. Those were significant, it was a significant thing for our Lord to grieve and for others to see his love for Lazarus. When you uh, come to... Uh, Second Samuel chapter 3, uh, you're, you're in the section where you remember uh, Joab and his brother murder um, uh, Abner. And, and uh, David is very displeased with that. It could well have looked as though uh, David broke his covenant of peace and had done something really uh, unseemly. And David's manifestation of grief was a lesson to the people and they said he had nothing to do with this. It was a very important thing for him to do. His grief had benefit for others. Sometimes, however, grief is not so good. For example, you remember when Samuel was grieved over the fact that Saul was going to be removed and finally God had to say to him, all right, Samuel, it's time to get over this. Stop grieving for him, because God, of course, had something far better, and it was time for for Samuel to get past his grief over Saul. And then there's uh, uh, David's grief uh, when he grieved over the death of his son Absalom. You remember that account where where Joab um, puts uh, Absalom to death. And that was really contrary to the wishes of David. David somehow wanted the battle to be won, the the rebellion to be put down, but not at the expense of the one who started it, which was Absalom. Joab, I think, rightly put him to death. And then uh, David grieves in such a way that the people feel shame and they they literally wilt away. And, And Joab comes and sticks his kind of bony finger in David's face and says, Listen, you're... You, you would have been happier if all of us had died and your son had lived. Your grief is misplaced. And that misplaced grief is liable to cost you your kingdom. Get over it and get on out there and be with the people. So misplaced grief has a very negative effect, just as proper grief can have a positive effect. It seems from our text that there were some Thessalonian saints who were grieved in a way that was not really appropriate. And therefore, 
Paul finds it necessary to speak to them about this matter of grief. And we want, of course, to focus on good grief because that is what Paul is describing for us in these verses in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Before we get there, though, I want to I want to make an appeal and for you to see that the section of Scripture that was read, 4.13 through 5.11, is really a unit and that we need to understand and interpret this chapter 4 in the light of what will come in chapter 5. It has a common theme, and that is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is dealt with as it relates to believers in chapter 4, as it relates to both unbelievers and believers in chapter 5. It has more to do with salvation in chapter 4, more to do with judgment in chapter 5. But there are these points of continuity. He says, brothers and sisters, when he introduces it, he speaks of the coming of the Lord. He ends both sections with encourage one another. And he uses the terminology of being asleep and of being awake. So it kind of binds the two sections together. However, we need to see the distinctions that are made as well and how Paul is sort of contrasting one with the other. For example, in 4.13 through 18, Paul begins by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. And it's clear that there are things Paul has not taught those Thessalonian believers that he now takes up and begins to discuss. And they have to do with future things. And that, of course, pertains to the content of both First and Second Thessalonians, but it really begins here. When he gets to chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, in effect, now when we come to the times and the epics, you don't really need to be taught. And what he's saying is, I've already dealt with you on these subject matters. So there's the new material of chapter 4, there's the old material of chapter 5, so there is a distinction made. When you see the emphasis on the coming of Christ, it is, in chapter 4, focused on believers and on the blessing that will come to believers because they will be raised and they will be united with him and with uh, one another. When you look at chapter 5, it's more focused on the day of the Lord, and that is a coming that has much to do with judgment, and that judgment comes upon those who are unbelievers. It's interesting, too, the way he uses the word sleep, but he switches the meaning of his terminology. In 4.13 through 18, he talks about those who are asleep, and he means by that those who are believers in Jesus Christ, but they have died uh, in their faith, and, and so they're asleep, as we would understand. Jesus talks about Lazarus as sleeping, and we understand that terminology. When you come to chapter 5, he is talking about unbelievers, and he says they're asleep, but it's more like asleep at the wheel. They are dull and unaware of and unconscious of the impending judgment that is awaiting them. And so they're asleep, and now it's used in that different way. But then in verse 10, he comes back again, and he says, whether we're awake or whether we sleep, now he's talking about believers again. So you have to be on track and follow that term. But the term sleep actually binds the two texts together. Now, when we come to chapter 4, verse 13... 
we come to the problem that Paul is uh, addressing. Here is the key, I think, to understanding the verses that we have before us this morning. He says to them that he does not want them to be ignorant. He does not wish them to stay, as it were, uninformed about those uh, who have fallen asleep and that they would not grieve as others, as unbelievers, who have no hope. So there is an improper grieving over saints who have died. Now, remember, Paul was not there in Thessalonica very long. Uh, and and I, I'm not quite sure what it was that brought about the death of these people in weeks, perhaps in a few months. But the sense was, even amongst the disciples, the sense was that our Lord Jesus Christ's coming was so imminent that, that it was literally any day and who knows, uh, you know, when it would be. Now you have saints dying. Maybe they died as martyrs. Or maybe they died for other reasons, but somebody or perhaps more than one person has died. And now that sort of throws a, a wrench into the gears of the Thessalonians' minds. And it's like, what does this mean? How do we deal with that? And so Paul feels the need for the instruction that he gives them, instructions that he did not give before. Let me just make a comment about that, if I can. When Paul was with them and when Paul was elsewhere in his evangelistic preaching, while he offered the hope of the gospel and eternal life, one of the prominent themes in the preaching of the gospel is the judgment of the Lord that's coming. You see that in Acts chapter 2 with Peter. You know, in effect, if you want to sum it up, he says, Jesus Christ is coming again, and boy, is he mad. It, because... He has been rejected by his people, and, and judgment is going to come with him. So the judgment of the Lord was a prominent theme. The particulars about what would happen to believing Christians when they died was not really the, the most urgent theme at the time, but now, of course, it, it is. So what was improper about what the unbelieving Thessalonians held about death and the life beyond? In other words, he says, we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. Now, he's not saying we are not to grieve and, and then that unbelievers do grieve, Christians don't. He's saying the manner in which we grieve is different for believers than it is for unbelievers. So what is it that unbelieving Thessalonians held about death and the afterlife that would cause their grief to be very different from that of believers. I'm going to switch my points here, but number two, they had no certainty of life beyond death. For them, when you died, it was over. That's often true, at least uh, in the minds of some, until death comes. It's often true in our society that the sense is, where there's life, there's hope. When there's death, you're just gone. It's all over. And now there's nothing left. That seems to be the spirit of the day. There certainly was no hope of a bodily resurrection. I even hear today some people will say, well, you know, they've died, but they're with me. They're always with me. You know, well, yeah, their memory is with you and whatever. But the reality is they are not really with you. But what they're saying is in spirit, they're with me. 
But they really never go on to say, as unbelievers, I know that I'm going to see them again and I'm going to live in eternity with them. No sense of bodily resurrection there amongst the unbelieving community that I can see. No hope, therefore, of future fellowship and relationship with those who have passed away. That was a lifetime experience and it's gone for them. That leads to a predisposition to live a life of self-indulgence. If I were to pick one biblical text, and my inclination is I'll take one biblical text to ten historical books on the subject, it's 1 Corinthians 15. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What Paul says is, if there is no hope of resurrection then you might as well cram it all in in this life because there isn't going to be one. That we have from Scripture, and that, it appears to me, is the character of that age and, frankly, of ours as well. Here's my last one. No relief from the fear of death. When an unbeliever dies and and another unbeliever experiences that, it strikes at a chord of great discomfort that you just can't get past apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. When you go to the funeral of an unbeliever, when an unbeliever goes to the funeral of an unbeliever, they are brought face to face with that great enemy of death and of the power that it has over their lives. And they are reminded of that. And there is no comfort at all for an unbeliever because nothing has been done to resolve that fear of death which the Christian has had remedied in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So what was wrong with the Thessalonian believers' belief and practice regarding the Christians who had died? I'm not sure about my first point. I'm I'm saying some would say this, and I'm thinking about it. But the question may be the difference between the intermediate state of the Christian and the ultimate state of the Christian. Now, this is pretty murky waters. But somehow, when a person dies, they immediately go to be with the Lord, right? And then it says they're going to come down with him, and then they're going to be, their bodies are going to be raised, it seems to say, and so their spirit and their body is now joined together. If I understand the kingdom that our Lord is establishing, where men are going to reign with him, and where you have the tree of life, you know, and you eat of the fruit and so on, you're going to have to have a body for that. You need a body for the kingdom. So there, there is that, that existence, that intermediate existence that exists for a believer who has died, but somehow there is something better about the existence of one who has body now joined to spirit in, 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 that will be for all eternity. Now I'm going, to, I'm going to say one more thing that's not my notes here, but... How does Paul deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that when Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, where Paul says, it is better for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. How do you deal with that? 
And I would say, it all depends on what you're looking at. If Paul is looking back at life on earth as, as he is presently living it, then the intermediate state's better than the, uh, than the one he, that he's presently living. Would you not say? It's better to be with Christ. You're not maybe in your, in your heavenly, in your new body, but you are there with him. So it's better. When you look from the standpoint of the intermediate state to the permanent state of the believer with your renewed body, that's better. But it seems to me that Paul can say in this life, it's better to die and be with the Lord in that intermediate state than it is to be in the present state. Well, you can weigh that for, for what you think it's worth. Secondly, it's better to be alive than dead at the coming of Christ. It seems to me that that really is the issue that's in these people's minds. These, there have been certain believers who have died, and they're not sure how to come to terms with that. But when Paul says that they, that those who are alive at the coming of Christ don't precede, seems to me what he's saying is they don't get cuts in line. They don't get moved to the front of the line, but rather those who have died in Christ are put at the front of the line. It seems to me he's reversing what he supposes uh, that they are thinking. Now, if you think I'm out on a limb, try this on for size. Go to John chapter 21. And I would like to suggest to you that the mentality which Paul is dealing with in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the same mentality that Peter has in John 21. Look at John 21, verse 18. Now, you remember, this is right after three times he says, Simon, Simon, do you love me? And, and, and he'll say, you know, you know I love you, feed my sheep. Now, after that aspect has been dealt with, in verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, it becomes more clear as we read into verse 19. Now, this he said signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Here's the point at which Peter is revealing his thought. It's better to be alive when Christ comes than it is to have died. He says in verse 20, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We assume that to be John following them. The one who had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In other words, if I'm going to die early... What about old John here? Now, you remember Peter, James, and John. Three guys on the inner circle, right? Two of them are brothers. <clears throat> John is going to live last. James goes first. And Peter goes in the middle. There's no real explanation other than just the sovereign purposes of God for when those guys die. Because all of their circumstances and their potential contributions look the same. But Peter now is saying to the Lord, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me I'm going to die. Is he going to die too? And, and surely you get the inference that he's saying, I don't think this is fair as though, you know, I'm getting ripped off. Now, I'm going to give you my 10 cent 
later handling of this text. But when I come to the book of Revelation, it's John who is alive, Peter who's gone, right? John's now on the Isle of Patmos and he's having all this vision and, and he sees heaven, New Jerusalem, lower down. And, and he sees, you know, as it were, these beautiful buildings. And in my mind, I know it's fiction. In my mind, I see a window and a guy leaning out that window waving. And you know who it is. It's Peter saying, oh, John, <laughs> who won? See, it wasn't so bad for Peter when you look from heaven's point of view. But from his point of view, something is wrong. He's been shortchanged because his life has not been as long as the life of somebody else. So it seems to me that there is something about this, the death of those believers, that causes those who are living to think in terms of those who are gone as though something less than desirable has happened. And there is a grief there as though they've been shortchanged, when in reality that is not the case at all. And that's what Paul's words mean to correct. And that brings us to verses 14 through 17, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Note the if. The if is there in the New American Standard, the Net Bible, the King James, New King James. Uh, let me just say that it, it's, the if is not in doubt. There is no question about the premise. It's called a first condition uh, clause. And so what he's really saying is, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, these things are the outflow of that. And you'll see that the uh, ESV and the, and the CSB um, uh, translate it since. The NIV and the New Jerusalem Bible say, we believe this to be true, and thus that's going to play out. All I'm saying is, there's no if, there's no iffiness in the if. The point is, we believe this. This is what the gospel has said, that is the gospel we have believed and by which we have been saved. If God raised the dead body of Jesus from the grave, that, Paul says is what's going to happen to believers in him. So the gospel has its extension. Now, what that says to me is, the teaching of the resurrection of our Lord, and by that I mean literal bodily resurrection, is absolutely critical. And Paul makes a point of that in 1 Corinthians 15. If you somehow pull the plug out from under that and you say, well, Jesus was raised, but in some spiritual, mystical sense, then we're in trouble. We're in trouble because he's talking here about a physical, bodily resurrection of believers from the grave. And so when you start chiseling at the resurrection of our Lord, the implications, I think, are very, very great. Verse 15, first part. Paul makes it clear. What he is saying here is not personal opinion. This is a word from the Lord. We don't know whether it was direct revelation that he had received or revelation that our Lord had spoken uh, to his apostles that had been preserved, doesn't matter. What he's saying is, what I am telling you now is directly from our Lord himself, and therefore you can take it, as it were, to the bank. 
those saints living at the time of Christ, when he comes, will not have priority over those who are asleep. Notice that. We believe that those who are alive and remain at the coming until the coming of the Lord shall not precede, go before, have cuts in the line, before those uh, who have fallen asleep. So there is equal standing. In fact, you might even go so far as to say there is preferential standing. If you get placed first in line, seems to me that is that is a good uh, thing in, in our minds. No superior status for those who continue to live as opposed to those or compared with those who have died. Notice another thing that you see in verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, I've heard people talk about the secret departure of the saints. I don't see any secrets going on here, man. You get a trumpet blast and a holler going on. It seems to me there's some kind of announcement that's being made that this is the triumphal work of God. You take that for what you you will, but it seems to me you have to take that as a very public proclamation uh, in what our Lord Jesus is doing. In that sense, you know, when all the, the, the sort of... Uh, movies and, and representations of the Christians being taken out and the unbelievers are looking at each other like, where did they go? Uh, they, may not, they may not grasp all of what's happened, but I think they've been given a pretty loud signal. Those who are alive at his coming will be taken up. That's where the word rapture is, is generally um, um, understood to, to originate. They are taken up together with him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus they will always be with the Lord. So what you have is now both those who were dead and have been raised and those who were living are raised together and they now together spend eternity with the Lord. Is that not the way you understand it? it, it it's just that uh, simple. And they will be with him forever. Now I come to... My conclusion, and this is where it gets a little sticky for me, and I'm just going to make a confession. When I got to this point, and I'm, and I'm struggling with how to deal with this text, I felt shortchanged. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how to say that. Now, part of it, I'll blame the commentaries because I always do. But part of it is I see, I see commentators going various places and seeing all kinds of things that I don't see or that are not clearly spoken. And so I'm saying to myself, well, you know, actually this just looks so simple. You know, the people who have died, they're going to be raised up. The people who are living, they're going to be raised up. Notice there's no description here of the transformation of those living. That comes in 1 Corinthians 15. That's not included. In fact, there there are a lot of things that aren't said in this text. And I guess that's what bothers me. There, There's no timing of the rapture. We're told that they're going to be, going to be uh, taken up uh, into heaven. There's no timing given for that in, in this text. Certainly no straightforward comment about that. 
No emphasis on what we will do in our bodies on this earth. It, it really has more of a heavenly feel to it, but there's no mention, for instance, as there will be later in chapter 5, of reigning with him and all of that. There's no mention of any of that kind of thing, just the fact that we are with our brothers and sisters in the presence of the Lord for, for all eternity. No mention, as I said, of being of transformed bodies on the part of those who are living. So there's a lot that Paul doesn't say. And what I discovered for myself, and I and what I think I see from some others, is it's like the toothpaste tube that's sitting on our sink right now. And and uh, it, it's at the end of its run. And and the last couple of days. You know how you just squeeze that old tube and you're hoping for one last tooth brushing? Well, I'm there. And, and, and we're squeezing that tube to see if we can get something else out of it. Sometimes I feel, when I come to this text, I feel like I'm supposed to squeeze the tube and get something more than what the text simply says. And when I read other people, I see them squeezing the tube also. Maybe harder than I am in terms of let's get something more out of this. So how do we come to terms with that? How do we come to terms with the brevity and the clarity and the simplicity of what our, 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 the Lord is teaching us through Paul's words? I would say a couple of things. One, what Paul says here is laying the foundation for what he has yet to say. This, this is a bedrock, bedrock basic foundation that, that sets the stage for what will be built upon it. So when you get to 5, 1 through 11, you're going to come to the teaching on the day of the Lord. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you're going to, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you're going to find that Paul is talking about the coming of Christ and its implications for believers and its implications for unbelievers. And, and things being made right. Second Thessalonians chapter two, you're going to come to the coming of our Lord and its implications for the evil one and for this evil system that's been put in place and God's victory over that. So what I'm saying is this is only, as it were, Paul's introduction to things to come, even in Thessalonians, not to mention that there are other texts in scripture which, which speak to this. So I would say this. In the terms of the television commercials, when I get to the end uh, and verse 18, I want to say this. But wait, there's more. Isn't that what they always say? If you send your ad in right now or you call in right now, they're going to give you two of these dudes rather than one. There's more. There is more, my friend. There is more. But he hasn't given it to us yet. And therefore, I can't cheat and tell you the more when this is as much as he has said to this point. We'll get to the more, I think, later. Here's what I'm really getting to. It's really about Christ. It's really about Christ. You know, one of the things that bothers me about myself and bothers me about prophecy is people have a morbid curiosity and they want to know what's been dis what hasn't been disclosed. They want to know the secrets. Prophecy has not been given so that we know everything there is to know about things to come. We've been given certain things 
that, that we are, we know clearly. We've give, been given other things that frankly, we just kind of hold in suspension and say, I'm not quite sure exactly where that fits. Unless, of course, you've got the book of Revelation figured out. I don't. And so, I start with the book of Revelation and I say this to myself. In Revelation chapter 1, it tells me about Jesus and His glory. In chapters 2 and 3, it tells me about His church. At the end of the book of Revelation, I find it tells me about Jesus coming in His glory and about how He relates to His church. That's going to happen, friends. That's the big message. And it's all about Christ. When I get in my curiosity mode... I generally start wandering off the central beam of Jesus Christ and his centrality and his glory, and I start wandering into things that are either elements of my curiosity or elements of personal interest. What's it going to be like for me? When I come to this text, I see that what Paul has done is condensed the truth down to its essence. And the essence of our hope is Christ. It is Christ who was crucified and raised from the dead. It is Christ who is coming back to raise those that are His own from the dead, to be with Him forever. There's really nothing more I have to know. And remember, that's all these people are told, and they didn't know, apparently, that clearly. So if this is what Paul thinks these Thessalonians need to know, I'm telling you, more than anything else, what we need to know about the future is what this text tells us. There are other things, don't miss me, there are other things that he has given us to know. But the core of what we are to know is that Christ is coming back and he is going to raise his people to newness of life and newness of body to reign with him in his kingdom. So that, that to me, I have to admit, that was a rebuke. I, I, I rolled over in bed and I struggled and wrestled with this thing. I thought, what is wrong with me? Why can't I see anything more? And all of a sudden it came to me. That's because you weren't supposed to see more. And what you see is what you need most. Well, anyway, I've pounded on that long enough. So how then should we grieve? I would suggest that if you want to take the essence of this grieving issue... People who are unbelievers are grieving because they are looking at the present in light of the past. All they can think about is the way in which they knew this person, the things that they benefited from in the past, but there's no future. They look upon the the death of that person as no future. When a Christian deals with death, he deals with death in the light of the future. And he understands that the past was just uh, just a, an infinitesimally small speck on, on the radar scope and that what the reality is, is what is described here. And so you look at loss, that momentary loss, as something which is going to be swallowed up by the gain. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this momentary light affliction is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's how our grief gets transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, let me say one more thing. This wasn't in my notes, but I stuffed it in here late. Unity. If Christians would stick 
with the clear and simple statements of Scripture, they wouldn't be divided nearly as much. I don't know of any evangelical who would not agree to the fundamental facts that have been spelled out in our text. I mean, you, you talk about all these different kinds of eschatological views. I mean, everybody can't be right. But if we all agree, Christ is coming again. He is coming in bodily form. He is coming to raise us in bodily form, and we're going to be with him forever. Can all Christians not agree on that point? Hey, that's a point of unity. And maybe sometimes when we start arguing with each other, we ought to go back to this and say, let's remember these things we hold in common. Okay. Encourage one another. How do we encourage one another? Well, we infuse courage in others. And there's no better way to infuse courage in others than to let them know that what's ahead after death is better than what's here in life. If that's really true, my friend, then we don't have to walk on eggshells, tippy-toeing around because we're trying desperately to save this life. That's why Paul could live as dangerously as he did. That's why he could say, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Because what is ahead is better for the Christian. Oh, another thing. He does not say, be encouraged. He says, encourage one another. I'm more and more impressed with the one another concept of the body of Christ, that it's not top-down There's a mutuality to it. We see that especially in in our worship at the Lord's Supper. What Paul is saying here is, yes, every individual Christian should be encouraged, but that encouragement is not to be contained selfishly. It is to be shared. The comfort God gives us is a comfort that is to be shared with others, and there is no better time than the funeral of one of our loved ones to make that clear. When we are encouraged, we should encourage other people. It's like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, the comfort with which we have been comforted is the comfort we are to share with other people. Our sufferings are meant to build us up so that we can build other people up. I think that's true in this text. And that's why you see the one another element in both chapter 4 and chapter 5. Our hope is the gospel. Is that not right? Our hope is the gospel. That's what Paul starts with. Jesus Christ was raised again. Over and over when Paul preaches the gospel, he preaches Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead. That is the foundation for all hope. And so if we want to give people hope, friends, there's only one way to do it, and that's to preach the gospel to them. That's where people's hope comes from, is the gospel of Jesus. It's when they trust in Jesus who died and rose for them, they know that they are going to rise from the dead as well. That's why I love to do funerals far more than I love to do weddings. Because it doesn't really matter what you say. You could say, Mary had a little lamb. People say, oh, wonderful message. They're not even listening. You go to a funeral... You go to a funeral, if you don't give those people the gospel, friends, they leave without hope. And they leave without hearing that there's hope. The gospel is the hope for men if they believe in Christ. I have to to say this. The gospel is, uh, what we have seen here in our text is only one side of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. 
The tragedy is, when you look at, 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 at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the reality of the, of the day of the Lord that's coming and the judgment that's coming, is that unbelievers don't see it. The greatest myth that Satan can tempt an unbeliever to, to believe is that when I die, it's over. My friend, the flip side of the resurrection coin is every single person will be raised from the dead. Paul has told us the benefits of that for the believer. There are multiple texts, and we'll see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Multiple texts, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many are those in the ground. Some will be raised to, to blessing, and others will be raised to judgment. John chapter 5, Revelation chapter 20. Over and over again, the Bible says to us that not only Christians are raised bodily from the grave, but unbelievers are raised as well. And if they have rejected Jesus as their Savior, my friend, they are raised to eternal torment. And the worst of it is, most of them don't know it. That's why we must proclaim Christ. The good news for believers is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and so will we. The bad news for unbelievers is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and so will they. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage. Help us to, to deal with it in a straightforward way. Help me not to twist it in a way that somehow bends it to what I would like to hear. Help me to deal with these difficult texts in ways that just say what you've said. Father, for believers, may you give us great comfort and great hope, not only with respect to those who we love, who love you, who have died, but with respect to our own death as well. Give us courage. Help us to cling very loosely to this life, knowing what you have in store for us. For those who are unbelievers, may you convict them of their sin, of the righteousness of Jesus of salvation that comes only through him and of the judgment that comes to those who reject. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.